welcome to 2D Pokies Under the Influence. My name is Pete Berthaud, and my co-host is Robbie Dowling. Robbie, college football season is canceled. Wait, actually, no, no, it's not. Uh, it's back on. Wait, no, I think it's canceled again. <laughs> Do you, can you help me out with this? Uh, some of it is canceled. Uh, parts of it are canceled at the present moment is probably the most accurate way But at the moment. But if we get back on Twitter here during the podcast, something else will have changed. I know, man. Give us a cheers. Kick us off. How about just a cheers to... Um, well, something that we'll all be able to tell our kids about. If you do end up having kids and I already have a daughter, one day I'll be able to say that uh, this is the most probably unprecedented time in, you know, at least definitely our lives, but in probably a lot of people's lives, uh, college football history. And we're marching through and no matter what, um, we're going to have to deal with it. So how about a cheers to just being flexible and trying to be patient and recognize that we're all going through um, crazy stuff, both with football and sports, athletics, college programs, and just, you know, the world at large. So that's about, that's about all I can muster on, on, on a good cheers right now. Uh, And uh, I wish I had more positive to say, but things are, things are rough right now, which we'll get into. Cheers, man. Well, the good news for the moment is that the ACC football season is still on, but we are very much dealing with a season on the brink. The the 2020 season is in danger of being canceled completely. The chips started to fall, I guess, on Saturday when the MAC decided they were going to postpone their season. Uh, the Mountain West wasn't too long after that. Last week, we had some individual programs in UConn. Uh, ODU has joined that. UMass, they have all postponed. And then today we got the big news that everyone's been waiting on that the Big Ten and the Pac-12 have canceled their fall football seasons and they are, I guess, hoping to play in the spring. The key to the remaining three Power Five leagues seems to be the Big 12 and what their decision is going to be. At least from the articles I was reading, that's kind of the linchpin because if they fold, then the ACC is believed to also call it for the fall. Yeah, the the SEC will most certainly be the last one to to call it. I would think. Um, I I sent a message to you and Joe. I think it was on Saturday that, and I this wasn't me reading anything, but as soon as the Mac folded, I said it's done. That was the first signal for for me. They were they were the first kind of the the ten to really call it call it quits, and that's when you know my hopes went from. Very, very small to non-existent. And I said that that was the domino that was going to set everything off, and it did. And um, they they ended up making the decision, and now we're starting to see it topple. We have the SEC, the ACC, and the Big Twelve, as you mentioned. Um, to, they are there. That's that's kind of all that's left. I don't, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen, and I think a lot of people have kind of use this phrase and it's probably mind numbing to people at this point. I think they're going to kick the can for a little bit longer and uh, see what happens. And maybe they're going to try and just get a few games in just to stop the bleeding, get some sort of, you know, money in the door or something along those lines. But I'm, I'm not so sure, certain what's going to happen. 
Yeah, and it's so crazy that just after we get these schedules and dates from the Big Ten and the ACC, that the Big Ten turns around and cancels the season. And I guess some of that is that the people in charge of making the schedules and coaching the teams, ADs, commissioners, all that kind of stuff, they're not involved in like the final decision-making when it comes to whether the season will actually be played. That's left up to presidents, chancellors, what have you, at the universities. And from what I was reading about the Big Ten, they were very, very concerned, not just about immediately people getting COVID, testing, protocols, but the post-COVID issues, most notably the heart issues. Right. Uh, myocarditis was was brought up the most, which is the scarring of the heart. And that was really the biggest thing, I think, that led to this cancellation. Yeah, Chip Patterson, they put out one of their emergency podcasts today. I think Barton Simmons asked him, or maybe I can't, or maybe it was Danny Cannell said, like, what what changed? And Chip said extremely firmly, once the press hit, there was a Washington Post article. Once the stuff started happening with the heart condition news on it, that's when the Big Ten said we're done. Like the, that, yeah. that's where it crossed anybody's threshold for you know um, being comfortable with with playing the season. So I think that. Because, you know, the schedules came out and I think everybody was like, oh, maybe there's some chance. And then things quit turn, turned so quickly over a 72-hour period. And by my understanding, it was when all the heart stuff started coming out and the dangers, not just with getting COVID, but what it could do to you otherwise is when things took a very, very fast turn. Yeah. And let's take a step back to Sunday when the hashtag we want to play started trending among a lot of famous players, most notably Trevor Lawrence, I think Justin Fields, Najee Harris, uh, Chuba Hubbard, uh, a lot of very high-profile players, including a few Virginia Tech players, tweeted it out, uh, tweeted out the graphic. Even Whip Babcock tweeted out the hashtag, we want to play. So it shows you how much, like I said, administrators uh, are different from the presidents and who has different motivations and liability issues that are concerning them. And uh, despite its simplicity that we want to play, it still seemed fairly powerful the kind of a, a union among players, for lack of a better term, across conferences that we haven't really seen. Uh, a union in actuality doesn't really seem possible for college football players and more of an association, a player's association, or like a student union would be more of a way to go. But it was interesting to see players from across the country, across conferences, come together, tweeting out the same image, uh, basically just having a voice, which they don't often do. Yeah. And their message was twofold. It was not just trying to ride the other end of the spectrum of saying, you know, we want to play football. Uh, it was, we want to play football and we want to play it safely. So it was two, it was coupled together in to let people know that, you know, we do have our own say in this, that we do want to go out there, but we also want the the proper protections, which I thought was a, a good balance. It, it was expressing a willingness and a wanting to go out there and play football, but also do it in a, a way that's safe. So I think it, and it, it was to your exact point, 
what we're starting to see and what's going to be talked about, especially if there is no football and it's going to be growing, is giving the players a voice. You know, their their voice is... It was so weird. I was listening to the cover three on the way home and they started talking about this, but it's so strange if you take a step back from it that you have this huge, huge populace of players with no voice about whether they play or how they play or what the schedule looks like or the decision, you know, they have like two seats at the table of like a, you know, 15 person, you know, group. And I don't know, that had never really dawned on me previously other than in a more naive way of like, you know, they don't get much say in it etc. But it, it, it is kind of strange if you step away from it and be like, these guys just get, you know, dictated around on what happens and what happens with know, like well. How many saying. games are we playing? Like how many home? How many away? Yeah. Do we get neutral sites games every year? Like how many hours a week do we practice? Things like that. And it's all decided by the NCAA and by the conferences. Yeah. This week also, I thought uh, <laughs> there has been so much sniping between fans and media Media and media, uh, just because of how divided everyone is on, I'm not even sure because we all want to play. I mean, that's the funny thing about the we want to play hashtag. It's like, no shit. Of course you want to play. Like all the players want to play. They're young kids. They're healthy. They feel invincible. Of course they want to play. And the coaches want to play too, because they love football and it's their career. Uh, the question was always whether they should play. And that has been, I don't know if politicized is the right word, but man, oh man, you've got the media reporting on things, which I guess people perceive as they want to cancel football. But as me and you have talked about many times, like no one that works in college football media wants the season to be canceled. That is their livelihood. That's, you know, they, their jobs are on the line too. So it's it's funny how, whether it's fans or media that really, really want college football are mad at the media that's reporting that there could be issues. <laughs> yeah, I've been off Twitter a lot more lately just because it's gotten you know frustrated. Maybe it is out there in that narrative that the media wants it canceled. Just give me a break. What benefit does Bruce Feldman have by you know having a season get canceled or any any of these? Like, if anything, it's going to put jobs at risk. And these are people that have already gone through rifts in the past as journalists have been fired as SI eliminated, you know, an entire um, group that covered college football. Like that, that's not what they want to see. And similarly, I, I have a, another perspective that I thought was just kind of saddening and really interesting is the players that have said, you guys told us that if we took this seriously, that if we followed the protocols, that if we we did this the right way, that we could make the season happen. And maybe not everybody, because there's never 100%, but a, a vast majority of them took it very seriously and they tried to do the right thing. And they still ended up with the the bad result of, of, of yeah. it getting canceled. I mean, that that's got to be demoralizing and sad to like put the effort in to, you know, take this seriously and then just end up with the same result. No matter, no matter what that, that, that really has to suck. It leaves people with so many questions of like, what did it take so long? And were you working on alternative plans? And why did you have us back on campus? If you're just going to cancel the season, like, and I, I get all those things. And 
and none of them are easy answers. Like that's, yeah. I think everyone was hopeful, including the administrators, including the presidents. Everyone wanted it to happen so badly. It's hard to give up on the idea of getting that money in the door because it's going to be costly for these universities. And so just like a lot of things, decisions come down to the 11th hour and that's what we're at. Yeah, I didn't, I was not appreciative uh, and somebody that I respect greatly and I usually agree with a vast majority of his opinions. But on on that episode today, Tom Fernelli was talking about how there were reports that like everybody was around the table, they decided to cancel and they were coming up with contingency plans like at that, at that moment. The fact is these, it is well-documented. It's been well-discussed that all of these schools had 10 to 12 to 14 different contingency plans. They just didn't know when they were going to have to enact them. And they weren't sure that things were going to change that quickly in a three day time frame. that when they sat around and said it's canceled by saying that they started going through the contingency plans doesn't mean that they weren't already laid out. They were laid out. It just, everybody was hoping and, and, and trying to, you know, get to the point that they had to make those decisions. And then it got, it got, very much, um, you know, accelerated over the past few days. So I thought that was a little bit short-sighted. I don't think that the the Big Ten got around a table today and was like, oh, season's canceled. Let's start figuring out what the next plan is. Uh, I'm pretty sure that they spent millions and millions and millions of dollars figuring out everything that they could do and had it all laid out. It just got accelerated to, here's the decision now we have to really start thinking about if there's another step. Yeah, like, which plan are we going to go with? Where, yeah. where are we going to focus on our energy now? And I, I agree with you. There's no way that... I got a helicopter going over my head right now. Hold on just a second. <laughs> uh, there's no way that they hadn't thought about these these contingencies and stuff like that. But I, So I wanted to just read two things uh, from Bruce Feldman and Ross Dellinger before we move on to our next topic. And and Bruce just put this out about an hour ago that the Big 12 presidents had decided to continue and keep playing this season and are expected to have a revised schedule already in the works. And then Ross Dellinger about half an hour ago said, before the presidents okayed to continue the season for the Big 12, the ADs got briefed for 90 minutes tonight by a medical panel, which led to vigorous debate. Uh, sources tell SI now that conference plans to add an extra layer of protocol involved involving heart imaging tests for COVID-19 patients. So that goes back to what we were saying is like, that has been the main concern these last few weeks is this heart issue, um, cardiovascular issues, myocarditis for these young athletes, they can be affected long-term. And uh, that, that's the, been the biggest thing. And I know there was an article, I think from Dellinger earlier this week about how expensive those heart imaging tests can be. So I, I'm, I'm very fascinated to see where that goes. But uh, nevertheless, the Big 12 right now, sources, sauces, uh, they're going to continue. And so if they're continuing, I would say that you kind of alluded to it. The ACC, SEC, everyone's going to kind of kick this can a little bit farther and see see how far they can get. Yeah, I'll add a, a few kind of three points uh, to that. I think Pete Thamel came out, and this I couldn't tell the time frame and the time stamp. It might have been before the the announcement, but said in talking to his sources that they were further from pulling out now than even a few days ago for the ACC. That was with respect to the ACC, which I thought was 
you know, kind of crazy. We had the ACC medical experts say that he thinks the season can be played. Um, that was the commentary, but there has to be a certain level of risk tolerance that the schools, the administrators, the conferences have to be willing to to take on. And then I think the 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 final point that I don't want to debate here, but I do think it's an interesting. I don't know if you're having shower thoughts trying to figure out how this is, is whether students are actually would be safer within the organization, within the school, within the regimen of the program versus, you know, being at large with a student populace or if there are no students allowed, whether it be at home. Um, and I think that that does not have an answer to it whatsoever. So I don't think it's worth going back and forth on, but it's, it's an interesting concept just to think in your mind, you know, what, what, what is actually best um, for them, regardless of whether there is football or isn't football, you could mm. still be within that program, have access to, to medical care, have the regiment that is put in place, you know, that, that camaraderie of trying to be safe and those sorts of things. I think it's just an interesting thing to kind of put in the back of your mind and kind of think about whether, We'll never know whether that's right or wrong or, or any of those things. But uh, I think- Yeah, because Saban came out and said something about that. Trevor Lawrence came out and said something about that. That, hey, if you, if you cancel the season and guys go home, they're at a lot more risk than if they stay here. There was no evidence to support that. We, the, yeah. That is just saying something to say something. Yeah, and but there's no evidence to disprove it either. I, I agree. I, yeah, I just it's, uh, it, yeah. it's like it's a worthless kind of statement because there's no way to prove or disprove that hypothetical. Uh, I well, there is. All I know is ACC when I was in college, plays, if the ACC <laughs> plays and the Big Ten doesn't, then we will have a very good stat on whether I that is true or true. not. <laughs> I guess that's true. Uh, we can move on uh, and maybe touch on some of this at the end, too. It'll probably come up throughout. But let's just go through a, a little bit of what Fu said to the media this past week. He had a media session. He talked to John Laser on a fun little thing for Fan Day. And he also did a Sons of Saturday interview. And so there's a few things that came out of that. Let's start with the roster updates. Uh, first and foremost, Taiwan Garbutt. He is not with the team right now. He's addressing a family issue that was left just like that, generic. Uh, but Fuente did say he probably won't play this year. Uh, so uh, if we do have a season, that's definitely a, a shot to our defensive end depth. Jaden Cunningham, a defensive tackle, he's not with the team either. He has an Achilles injury. That sounds like a longer-term thing as well, so I would expect him to be out for a fall season. We're still waiting on Raheem Blackshear's waiver. Go figure. Uh, Thank goodness. You hear uh, Tua's brother gets cleared down at Maryland, uh, even though Blackshear transferred earlier. But if you have a high-priced lawyer and you're a big name, your your stuff will get cleared a lot easier. That is, by the way, especially right now with these, with the students getting more of a voice, I I hope and that they use their voice for that because this waiver process is getting... It, it, it was, it got, it was really bad for a period of time. We can go through the quarterbacks that got cleared very easily. And, you know, us obviously getting stuffed on, 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 on some really good um, situations that should have been approved, you know, almost immediately that ended up getting, you know, either rejected or, or taking this oh. long and with, uh, yeah, with, with Brock and it's, it's outrageous. It just needs to end. They need to figure something out and get it, get it, you know, passed and have it be uniform across all players. The last roster update I had was uh, Wilfred Penne. He's still stuck in France. The the tight end 
freshman who, who's supposed to be coming in this year. Uh, just with everything that's going on, we're not sure if he'll he'll get over. Oh, there was the Colbeck thing, which I think most of us knew for a while that he was going to focus on track, but Colbeck is no longer with the team, and I his scholarship is going to be now through track. So yeah, um, he's covered, but just not with football. There were also some coaching additions to the team. Uh, Kyle Chung, Jerron Gouvier-Winslow, and Corey Fuller were all added to the staff. Former players added to the staff. We now have eight former players on staff, including Hamilton, Tapp, Jack Tyler, Schumann, who helps out in the weight room, uh, Fuller, Guvio, Winslow, and Chung. That's a lot of former players on one coaching staff, and that's not even all the alumni because I know there's a lot of guys that went to Virginia Tech that didn't play that are also on staff. So uh, I know our outreach with regard to former players has a bit of a black eye right now, and I think maybe bringing these guys in will be helping with that outreach. Yeah, I would agree. It, it, it's, it's exciting. I hope that the, um, I hope it benefits a lot for, you know, the Virginia recruiting and, and trying to bring people in, um, that know Virginia tech and know former players and, you know, are excited about the program and can, can relate to somebody that, that played and, or alumni from, from the school. And, um, you know, I, I think, it's it's positive and, and in some ways I I kind of wonder if the, it might not benefit to have some people from other programs as well or other areas of the country and things like that. But um, it, I think it's a it's an obvious and cohesive strategy that's being employed to try and do that and to bring people back in and to maybe mend some of the wrongs that were done previously to former players and not that any of those folks are not deserving to be on there. I don't mean it that way. I just mean, you know, maybe there was kind of some self-reflection in the mirror and saying, Hey, maybe, maybe we aren't doing things right. Maybe we do need to kind of respect the legacy of the program and bring people in that understand what it was built on and the foundations because you, me, and when we've had Joe on the podcast, we've talked about this getting back to what we remember, you know, Virginia tech football being and, I'm not so certain that there's not a better way to do it than having people that were a part of those programs that were a part of that to really speak what it was like, how we can develop it, how we can build it up again. So, uh, you know, I think it's, it's all positive. It's, it's great. And just the fact that we're, we're adding more depth to, you know, we're a school that's behind and, you know, we'll talk about that in a minute and we're really focusing on it. So I wanted to go back to, to Fuente for a second and talk about his interview with the Sons of Saturday. Uh, he had a bunch of interesting things to say on there. He went over the COVID guidelines. Obviously, this was about a week ago when the Caleb Farley thing, which we'll talk about briefly, came to light. Um, and he also went into last year's team and how they transitioned after Duke. And he said that they were soft. And that that's what we said too on the podcast. We're like, they're soft like right now. And, and Fuente said he had no one to blame but himself. He took, he took the onus on that. Um, and so that was cool. And then he talked about the upgrades to the staff. He talked about Tracy Clay's facility upgrades that are coming. He talked about a few of the guys we just did and, and when Gouvier Winslow and Fuller being added, but he said there are even more staff additions coming. So he's working with Wit on that. Did you have anything that that you heard in there that was of note? Yeah, the I think the most important line, and I didn't write it down verbatim, but 
you know, I got it pretty close was when he said, what you see on the field is what either what you coach or you choose to accept. I mean, bar none, that was the most kind of impactful line of the entire interview. And I thought was a really well articulated way of pointing out what either I'm allowing this to happen or I coached it to, to be that way. And in either case, it's my responsibility. It, it was, I thought that was just a great way of saying it. It gave me a lot of confidence in what is going on in the locker room, what's going on in his head, his mind, his coaching methodology. It really struck me as something very intelligent, but also a well-articulated way of taking, as you said, responsibility for what happened. And I came away from it with a feeling of encouragement that, you know, I this guy is the right guy to lead Virginia Tech right now. And I have said to you in the past, too, when I hear Fuente talk, for the most part, I, I walk away from that soundbite feeling encouraged. I, I do often feel like in, in a macro sense, when he speaks for a long period of time and you listen to him, they're like, okay, I can get behind what this guy's putting down. But we've seen so many times, you know, that with the transfer portal thing that happened a few months ago, or or there, there's been a lot of examples where things are pulled and he doesn't have the media savvy or the the media credit uh, to to wiggle his way out of certain comments. And that's been an access problem, in my opinion. Yeah, it's an access problem. I think it's it's just not his strength. So maybe the best way to say that differently is if we did put him in front of the media all the time, if he did have full access to him all the time, I'm not so certain that we would like what we're hearing or that he wouldn't say something that he wouldn't really otherwise you know like or that he wouldn't come off not maybe not defensive, but say something that is defensive. It, that does not seem to be his strong point. And even during that interview, he was relatively set up for not softballs, but stuff that was kind of straight down the narrow. He knew what was going to be talked about and he had time to prepare and get his thoughts together. I'm not so certain that we, we would necessarily like all of those things if he just had kind of free reign access to him and he was always doing interviews that that may not be his strength, but it doesn't mean that coaching isn't his strength and, and leading a team and helping build guys up uh, for their future and whatever their career path may take them. It, it's not an indictment well, here's on my that. Angle on, well, what I was kind of getting at is I think when we hear from Fuente more, I actually think it's good. Like I actually think I come away getting to know him a little bit better or seeing where he's coming from. I think where his media savvy fails is in the short sound bites. So like, I really feel like if we were given more access, I think he's generally a good dude and that would shine through with more access we are given. And, and something we've been over many times is because we've been shut out because the media was shut out. Not that they have like a vendetta against him, but they're they're not going to do him any favors because they can't go see practice. They get like one interview every four months. And honestly, the best PR 
that this program has done is this the basically relationship with Sons of Saturday. They had uh, the one recruiting coordinator on. They've had Fuente on now. And they've got a relationship with Billy Ray Mitchell, a former player who they trust. And it's allowed a little bit more access. And like I said, when I hear him for longer periods of time, I like what I hear. I come away feeling good. That's fair. And I, and I didn't mean to contradict that more so that it's just, it's not something I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think all signs point to it's something that he doesn't like to do. Something he's not comfortable. You have that some people that, right, yes. you know, yeah, you have, you have the politician that can get up and is polished and can handle every question and, you know, hit them right back at people and loves doing it. Loves being, that is not, in my opinion, his forte or what he likes to do. So it's a struggle and it's a battle that I think we're going to continue. He's not Mac Brown. Yeah. (laughs) He's not glad handing. That's not, he wants to coach football. And if he didn't have to do an interview ever, he would probably choose that. (laughs) Yeah. So, but I do agree. I came away from the interview feeling really great about things. He, he said, uh, um, in my mind, all of the right things. And I think they pushed a narrative that they needed to. And even to your point, he, he said the same thing in different words where he's, he said, they asked him about social media and what people say and all those sorts of things. And he said himself, if people don't have access to the inside, if they don't know what's going on inside the program, if they're not in the locker rooms, then they're going to be able to come up with kind of whatever narrative that they, they want Exactly, but, and therein lies the problem, right? Mm-hmm. Is that you're you're allowing things to spin out of control because you aren't putting that message out there. You aren't putting that cohesive thought out there of why you know things are happening, and that's up to everybody. I, I'll also say, and you and I talked about this a little bit. I think doing that interview shows development, and in an area that has been criticized heavily for Virginia Tech, which is the communications program, the, the outward communications of, of what's happening, whether it's social media, interviews, uh, articles. I, I took that away as a positive sign that they're trying to you know, get their arms around what this is. This is not 10 years ago. I mean, social media has bred a life of its own. Podcasts have brought a life of their own. You know, message boards are no longer... I mean, now they're interactive. People know each other. They they develop a cohesive unit. There's there's real big donors that are you know uh, on social media and things like that, creating their own message or putting out signals that they want to have perpetuated in the program. And it took us longer to catch up to it than I think it should have. But hopefully, this is a sign that we're starting to grapple with what that looks like moving forward. Mm-hmm. And and they've been making strides slowly. With the, you had the hard hat series this past year. Uh, there, there's been a, a little bit more of a video push, and it's been appreciated. Don't get me wrong, uh, but they can do more. Mm-hmm. And I hope that this is the beginning of them doing more. Like I would love to see one fall camp practice a week with Fuente mic'd up. Yeah. Like that, that would be so intriguing. You could cut out the stuff if he's mentioning uh spider Y2 banana, like one of our yeah. plays or something, but you could make it so interesting. Um, and that's what I want to see because I, I really do think that if we saw more of whatever his personality is, 
it, it would it would serve everybody well. But and it wouldn't give even guys like you and I the opportunity to kind of pontificate of what's happening mm-hmm. and and there are times that you and I are on here just trying to speculate what could possibly be going on positive or negative or otherwise mm-hmm. and if you're and I'm not saying you need to you know like you said give away any secrets or bring up stuff about players or their health or things like that but there are definitely ways to give access where people can grasp on to the narrative that you're putting out there of what's actually happening because otherwise we're always going to go to like the deep dark place of like of course what what could be bad <laughs> vt twitter q anon <laughs> essentially yeah uh let's take a beer break before we move on to a recruiting update robbie what are you drinking so this was this has got an interesting backstory so i went to the store today and I guess it's been out for a little bit, but I, I've just been going somewhere else. I went to a Whole Foods today, pick up uh, beer for the podcast, and I found Green Flesh, uh, their oh. West Coast IPA. So, and I actually, before we got on here, I'd always heard rumors about what happened. Basically, Green Flesh took on a bunch of debt from an outside bank, and they, when the craft brew craze like kind of shot up and then started dipping down a little bit, their sales and the increased competition because everybody's got a beer and so does their, their brother and sister at this point that that competition really started to hurt their sales. They couldn't make their payments um, on the debt side. They had to shut down their uh, Virginia beach location, which was a big, you know, and then they shut down one of their spots. I think it was actually up in New Jersey, if I'm not mistaken. And I thought that they had gone completely out of business they basically went bankrupt. Somebody bought it is now trying to reinvigorate the green flash. Wow. I Um, I had no idea. Yeah. And they're out of, they're out of California and this is just their regular West coast IPA. They have a West coast double IPA, which was one of my favorite beers. We had it at a restaurant nearby and you know, me and a buddy used to always go there and, and get it whenever we could catch up for, for dinner. So when I saw it, I nabbed it. We've probably had it on here before, but it has been, uh, I guess I thought they were, I thought they were gone. Does it taste like it used to taste? Well, they moved from bottles to cans and the cans are actually a lot cheaper. But early on with craft brew, and I, I just know this from, you know, being a part of a brewery that's getting started. And then um, my wife's uh, cousin started a brewery down in Florida. They, the cans, etching the the onto cans was a lot more expensive. The price of that has come down dramatically and now it's a lot more cost effective to do cans. So they used to always do the bottles. If you remember the West coast had the the purple bottle. So now it's canned. And I think I didn't really like the West coast IPA as much. i like the double a lot more, but this is actually delicious. So I think it actually tastes a lot better in cans. I don't know if that's blasphemous or not, but it's, it's great and you can find it now even in Virginia. So it's great. Nice, man. I am drinking the Double Nickel Brewing Company Weekend Warrior. This is a hazy pale ale, 5.8% alcohol, and it is from New Jersey. Uh, Pensacola, New Jersey is not too, too far from where I live now. And Double Nickel is definitely one of the breweries around here that has a very wide reach. And their mix pack 
is is pretty popular. It's in almost every store. And this Weekend Warrior, as far as I could tell, hit the shelves this year. And it's awesome. I tweeted out a picture of the can. It's got some of the best can artwork I've ever seen. Um, just a really beautiful can. And it's a 19.2 ounce can. So it's it kind of like when I picked it up, I just thought it was a pounder. And I'm like, this does seem a little bit taller. And it's it's almost 20 ounces. So uh so I'm feeling good, man. But yeah, double nickel. It's a they make a lot of solid beers. They have a Vienna lager I really like. Um, they make a Belgian that's pretty good. But this weekend Warriors is a winner. It's it's one of those hazies that's lighter, so I, I really prefer it. Let's hop into this recruiting update, Robbie. Since our last pod, we've added 12 players to the recruiting class. We also lost a couple. We lost Tyus Martin and Latrell Neville. Of course, most people might not even remember that because it was a couple months <laughs> ago. We haven't done a recruiting update since the end of May. But I was sad to lose Martin and Neville. They were both nice recruits. But we've added some good players. The most notable from the additions is DJ Harvey. He's a four-star corner from California, and he's a 90 on 247's ranking system. That's a bit of a surprise getting a kid all the way from California, but the Hokies were working on this kid. Yeah, especially what we had alluded to, and I think some people in the recruiting groups were talking about players potentially wanting to stay closer to home, given everything that's changed in the landscape and with COVID and you know, it, it certainly changes all of our views on, on life and how we go about things on a day-to-day basis. So uh, obviously a, a great pickup and I believe it was on July 4th. So celebrate, yeah. celebrate in America right there. So <laughs> the next uh, biggest recruit we got, or I should say highest rated was Trey Curry, but he's also a big dude, six four, two ten, wide receiver from Tennessee. And he was an 88. And I, I love the prospect of Curry. I'm hoping, uh, Again, I'm a, like you. We don't know what's going to happen with this virus, but you're hoping that that all these kids uh, maintain their decisions, especially like you just kind of mentioned coming from a little bit farther away. You, you just never know with Harvey, but I, I love Harvey and Curry. Those two commitments were huge, and we got a new quarterback recruit in Taj Bullock to replace Demetrius Davis, six four QB from New Jersey, uh, and he was an eighty five on two four seven and. I think there was an article on Rivals a couple months back from Mike Farrell, the main guy, saying like Bullock is actually a better fit for Virginia Tech than Davis. Yeah, I thought that was, and I remember reading through reading through the article. I thought it was interesting. I mean, it's an aggressive comment, given yes, because <laughs> Davis is a very highly ranked, very good player. Yeah, but no, I think that the, the size, I think, it, it is going to fit well, and I think he's he's probably you know, better suited for maybe what Fuente and, and, and Brad are, are thinking about for the offense. So I, I get the train of thought. I just thought that we might've been going a little bit over, over the top given Davis's skill set and then, you know, what he's been able to do so far. One of the more interesting things that's been happening with our recruiting is bringing in these large defensive linemen. And when I say large, I mainly mean tall, but this movement towards 6'4", 6'3", defensive linemen is again happening in this recruiting class because we brought in Cole Nelson and we brought in uh, Mateus, in quotes, Stretch Carroll. He's 6'4", 220 from Baltimore, and Nelson is from Georgia. Just what we're doing on the defensive line is very interesting right now. And if you haven't, and I can't remember if it's 
if it's not paywalled, but it's one of the key plays uh, articles that French puts out that not everybody gets to gets to see. Um, it's really, really interesting in uh, even the commentary that was going back and forth on the message board about how we used to use how we used to use linebackers and how we used to do a little bit more shifting. And now we're trying to create more pressure, more kind of collapsing the pocket with the size and the athleticism. If, if nothing else, I think you can see the strategy by the recruits that we're going after that. It's not kind of all spread all over the board and it's more focused on, on size, being able to push people around, maybe not use as much, and this is a bad word, but gimmickry, like, you know, to try and, you know, facilitate what you're, you're doing, which Bud had a strategy and it worked for a lot of years. And you can see the defense taking a different approach, at least in the trenches right now and what they're trying to do based on at least the stats, the athleticism, the size of, of the players that we're, we are bringing in right now. No doubt. I mean, you look at who we had six, three and over on the roster a year ago to who we're going to have six, three and over on the roster a year from now. And it, it's like triple or quadruple the amount of guys. So we're, we're going after speed on offense and we're going after size on defense. Those definitely seem to be the two keys for our coaching staff. The other recruits we've pulled in, we got a, we got an athlete wide receiver from Texas and Dwayne Lofton, another athlete from Stephen City, Virginia, and Lawson. Uh, we picked up a linebacker from Virginia Beach in EC Etute. I have no idea if that's right. Uh, and Sean Ashbury the second, a cornerback from Stafford, Virginia. And then we added three more kind of, I guess, flyer recruits in Daniel Militic, an offensive guard from Germany. Malachi Thomas, a six-foot running back from Georgia, and Bryce Goodner, the latest recruit, who's a six-three guard from Tennessee, and can jump out of a pool. Did, yes. did you see that? That video was <laughs> extremely impressive. Of of the three, I probably focused most of my time on Goodner uh, on the offensive line. Big dude, athletic, supposedly wicked, wicked smart, if you if you will, and a really heady dude and just given all the positivity that we've had on offensive line, I think this kind of continues to build on that momentum that we've been generating and getting back to, if you think back and you and I have discussed on here before, one of our biggest complaints going back, you know, three, four, five years ago was what are we doing on the offensive line? Like we really need to start to develop that. And it's starting to really come into his own, even going back to the sons of Saturday, interview with Fuente when they talked about, Hey, what's the group that you are most excited about? And he was put in a little bit of a spot where you don't want to call out a single position group, but he alluded to the fact that he was most excited to see and, and the development that's happened on offensive line. And I think that really helps, helps build on it. Yeah. You don't like to name your favorite child, (laughs) but Fuente pretty much named the offensive line as the uh, favorite child of this year's team. And that's extremely exciting. So yes, Goodner being a little bit of a lower ranked recruit, uh, Militech as well. And I think last year was Parker Clements and Caden Moore. Neither of them were, were star. There were no Doug Nestor, you know, level of recruits in last year's class. Uh, these are developmental guys because we have Luke Tenuta, we have Hudson, we have Hanson, we have all these guys in the program, Darisol, who's still pretty young. 
uh, that are going to be taking the playing time. So you have time to develop a guy like Goodner who has good physical tools and a good head on his shoulders. Where we sit, it's not great, but we're number 41 in the composite. It's better than where we were. And we are 40th according to the in-house rankings. We're still 11th in the ACC. Uh, we, we've got work to do. 18 commits, couple of them don't have a composite rating. Uh, no, it's still not where it needs to be. But I think in light of the comments uh, Fuente made, in light of where we were, the coaching changes, it seems to be moving in the right direction. I will say we missed on four-star linebacker Jordan Poole. Seems like a bit of a bad miss. He's going to NC State. Uh, but there are still a few big targets out there, most notably Tyleek Williams. He's a four-star defensive tackle, 6'3 and a half, 317. Uh, he's high on VT. He's got a couple of crystal balls. They are from a, a bit ago. Uh, but I like our chances with him. Kevin Gilliam, to a lesser extent. There, there's a few other guys out there. Uh, Jack Hollifield, uh, you know, Dak's brother. I think we're still we're still hunting. Um, we'll see. We'll see. This this class still has potential to finish strong. But I I did kind of. I did kind of see Fuente move the goalpost or hear him move the goalpost in that interview when he was like, you know, I like that class of 2022. (laughs) And uh, he did that last year about the 2021 class. Yeah, that that did make me, there's probably a better word. I cringed a little bit just because Mm -hmm. uh, of that. Though he did make statements that are consistent of what we've been starting to hear, which they're trying to improve their evaluation. They're trying to improve the amount of film that they're watching across the country. They are building, obviously, uh, the, the the team, the coaching team, to to evaluate that film, whether those are guys that can travel and interview or not, which you know some of the new additions aren't going to be like that, but they have plenty of work ahead of them to try and help and evaluate players. And listen... It's it's not the ranking that necessarily we're going to be happy with, but Fuente honestly sounded like they're doing a better job of evaluating talent now. They're picking the guys that they want. They're not going to go after everybody. And the the more I listen to him talk and not to double back, his personality, I don't think, and his coaching style is necessarily going to fit with everybody. And I think... He conceded as much on 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 that interview that they're going to go after people that they think can fit in there, and so, you know, I'm hopeful they're they're going after the right guys that can be developed. And I think I think they are, and and they're, I think they're getting a lot of guys they like. Of course, they're missing on some. You're going to miss on some. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna prefer to stay optimistic because that you know yeah. I've been down on the recruiting. Everyone has. It, it's hard not to when you see see the the big numbers, but um. But yeah, I like the direction they're heading right now. Yeah. So we'll see how it how it finishes up. We did add one more player via transfer in wide receiver Changa Hodge from Villanova. Uh, he's going to be a senior, six foot one, two hundred pounds. He had sixty five catches and went over a thousand yards last year for Villanova. And I know it's FCS, but Villanova <coughs> Villanova plays in JMU's conference. They play in Delaware's conference. The CAA it's it's one of the better conferences, and. Pulling down 65 catches in any league is is pretty good. He's got decent size. We need depth at wide receiver, so I will take it. We are now up to 10 scholarship wide receivers. 
which is pretty good considering where we were at after all the departures uh, after last season. Yeah, when we were shaking in our boots because it didn't fit with the narrative that we thought we were going to be establishing in the program. So more bodies is always going to be better. There's the opportunity for somebody to come out and and break out or a few guys to come out and break out that maybe you didn't expect. So that, that makes me much more confident in where our position is and what we're trying to do in comparison to after all the departures. When we do play a season, whether it's in a month or next year, this Hodge kid, I think it's really going to make an impact. I, I, I honestly believe that. Like if you look at just who we have and who made plays last year and who's back, like the door is wide open. He's going to make more plays than that Ferris kid from Kansas. I guarantee you that. I mean, this kid played a lot and, and he has ability. So I'm excited about that pickup. Last thing on the docket for us today was talking a little bit about Caleb Farley. We, we didn't get a chance to do it last week because we just wanted to focus on the schedule, but our star corner did opt out of the 2020 season. It was brought to our attention by none other than Adam Schefter, which was kind of funny that it wasn't a local Blacksburg reporter. It, it wasn't even you know someone on the East Coast. It was a, na- a big national name, an NFL guy in Schefter, Uh, telling us that Farley's opting out of the season. Then we got a video from Farley shortly thereafter kind of explaining his decision. And then a day later, he had a little article write up in Peter King's Football Morning in America piece. What did you make of that media blitz from Farley? I don't know if you and I went back and forth on this. I don't know if it's much of a media blitz from him as it was, I mean, it was a huge decision. We really hadn't, there had always been talks with in prior seasons about players sitting out and things. And this is different. And we all know that. And we'll get to that in a second uh, of players setting out and just getting ready for the NFL. And it never really transpired much beyond kind of the narrative of what I think as a person, you this guy should be doing. He should just sit out and get ready for the NFL. He's not going to, you know, clowny. You can go, you know, it's just you go all the way back. That this this has started to kind of rear its head. This is a much much different situation. I think the video articulated it about as as well as anybody could. This was not, and he said as much himself, a business decision. This wasn't any of the same. This was just a health and safety. I mean, he lost his mother. And, you know, when he said, I, I just couldn't imagine me getting sick and then having that impact my family and like, you know, my dad getting sick or something along those lines. I think he made the decision for whatever his reasons are, all the right ones. And uh, I was completely supportive. I mean, and I think, you know, after the conversation that Fuente had with him, I think it was good. I think there was a, a little bit of, what we don't know is whether Farley and I don't know this and maybe it's out there somewhere, whether Farley ever went to the coaches or the administration and said, Hey, I have some real concerns about what's going on because there was some stuff that may have been able to be fixed, rectified, taken care of in the locker room that ended up, you know, looking pretty bad for, for, for the school. And that's not to put any blame on him. It just, it stinks that it ended up happening that way. I would have, and it also stinks that 
no matter what, if any of the players felt uncomfortable, then that's at the fault of the coaches, the administration, the AD. That's that's on them because they obviously mm-hmm. weren't doing what needed to be done or ensuring that it it should be. So that it was. And it, what you're referring to is is in Peter King's piece yes. when Farley was quoted as writing or saying. This year at Virginia Tech, at our workouts, I started having deep concerns about staying healthy. Guys were going home, going to Myrtle Beach, coming back to campus, and we weren't getting tested. We're all together, working out, close to each other, and you have no real idea who might have it, if anybody might have it. One day I looked around, and we were like 100 deep in our indoor facility, no masks. My concern grew more and more. And so that is what you're talking about when you say, it casts VT in a bad light. There's no other way to read that than... VT's not following the COVID guidelines, but there are, there's probably a little bit of context missing here such that the indoor facility that he's likely referring to is the Beamer barn, which has garage doors, which is more or less open air and has been open air since this started. Uh, And when guys are playing football and working out, I, I don't know if they're supposed to be wearing masks or not. Like, I I don't know what the, the protocols were or were not. Nevertheless, it it makes Virginia Tech look bad, and that's where where was the breakdown there? Did did Farley go to the coaching staff and say, "I have concerns. You're not addressing them. I'm telling everyone," or did he, did he just kind of feel this, not say anything, decide to opt out, and then say it? You know, and it, ultimately, it's kind of water on the under the bridge with with all the news cycle that's been. It's kind of almost gotten lost at this point. Um, it's it's hard to even remember back this far, but at the time this was kind of a big deal. Farley was the first FBS player, and he's a high profile FBS player to opt out. Since then, a lot have joined him, yeah. um, and it, it makes sense. And I don't fault him whatsoever. Not not one bit. If I was in his shoes, I might do the exact same thing. Um, but I just wish it didn't kind of like drag VT's COVID protocols into it. It, I mean, Witt had to say something, Mark Rogers, the, the medical expert from Virginia, he had to say something. Um, and they all said the right things and it kind of just got, you know, pushed to the side, uh, in, in terms of like us being like, we're doing all the right stuff. You know, he could have been more clear with the coaching staff and whatever, but yeah, I don't know if you had any closing thoughts on that. No, I'm just, I'm, I'm happy that he made a decision that's right for him. And I, hope he does awesome things you know as fuente and he said fuente said we're always going to be fans of him and and hope that he does the best and hope everybody stays safe it's just it it was just kind of a amidst a shitty situation it was kind of just more shit i guess is the best way to to put it so um and we've got to not his decision the fact that there was problems with the protocols and that sort of Mm -hmm. thing that were were in place or or there weren't, and then it just, hopefully now, obviously, VT has probably put everything under a microscope. So you, I can't, you would, you, you, you would hope that it's anything that was a, an issue or concern has, has since been resolved for the players. And, and that's where kind of our two conversations today meet, is, is that spot where, yeah, I like what Fuente has to say. I feel like we're going in the right direction at times. And then every few months we get dragged in a national article. And whether it was the transfer portal thing, 
whether it was Galen Scott, whether it was this with Caleb Farley, um, lots of different situations. But the common denominator is we're getting roasted in a national article. The Ross Dellinger article about guys trying to throw the game because they didn't want to play in a bowl. Like These are all stories that happen in a close proximity under the same coach. So that's where I'm just ready for the communication and the PR and the messaging from Virginia Tech to be better. It's It's got to be better because we can't keep having national articles about what right now isn't really a national contending program hitting the newswire. If you're Ohio State or Alabama and you're hitting the newswire with a with a negative thing here and there, guess what? You're still winning. So who the hell cares? But but we're not winning that much and we're still, you know, having these issues. The messaging has to be better. I, I'm hopeful that it will get better, but it, it, I'm just tired of seeing us like, you know, getting our name dropped in the mud and and it's it's unfortunate man yeah i think the way i said it to to you when we were texting about this is we just got to run a tighter ship right the, the, at the there's a dichotomy of news coming out over the programs versus what we're hearing when we listen to fuente talk during interviews and what we hear players say about him and then what i have to read on like a saturday about yep. about Virginia Tech having some issue and that needs to be bridged. Those things need to come together because I don't know how you do it, but it's I'm also not, you know, necessarily I'm not paid to figure that out, but somebody no. in the program needs to figure out how we align what seems like a coach that a lot of players love and will stand up for while they're in the program and after they leave the program and what he says, which everybody gets behind when he does these interviews and then these issues that just keep popping up. And maybe the best way to, to kind of close out that thought is also something that he said on that interview with sons of Saturday, which was, you know, you didn't pay me for what I just did. You just paid me for what's to come, you know, and that was really Fuente in the most honest way saying we had, a, we had a lot to kind of get in shape and, and clean up and, and work through and it's not going to be fun. And he was very honest and transparent with wit about that. And I do think that there are some coaches out there that take the narrative, whether, you know, you could think of a, a host of coaches that come out and say, we're not very good right now, or, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> or uh, our friends down the street, in Charlottesville saying we only have 34 guys that are capable of playing in the ACC on our roster right now. Some people take that approach and some people are very closed door. Don't talk about it. Kind of we'll handle this behind the scenes. I'm not sure what the best approach is and which one of those styles works better. I just know that the news continues to leak out. So you might as well just get out ahead of it is my opinion. And that comes back to the transparency and the communication that I think you were alluding to. Right. We, we just need better messaging from the program, Uh, whether that's new PR staff, whether that's new PR initiatives, I don't know what it is. And like, we aren't paid to figure it out, but we know that it's not good. So hopefully with everything else that seems to be getting on track, that will get on track. And I think that's going to do it for the podcast. 
uh, not our most uplifting podcast because we're dealing with a lot of the uncertainty going forward with college football. But we had a bunch of issues we wanted to address. We wanted to get to the recruiting as well. And we're hopeful that the ACC is going to play because um, although you could postpone to the spring, that's not the most viable option. And so if there's no fall football, there might not be any uh, football this school year. So we're we're hoping that we'll play as long as it can be played safely. And I guess we'll all kind of wait to see what these these three remaining conferences do. You can hit us on Twitter. It's at 2DVT, 2DVT at gmail.com and 2DVT on Instagram. It's also 2DVT.com. That is our website. You can go on there, stream every podcast and look at all of our hundreds of beers that we've had on the podcast. Uh, we both enjoyed ours very much tonight. So that was a plus. That doesn't always happen. Yeah. Sometimes we, we have to put out the more bad news, which is this isn't very good, or at least not for my taste buds. So, and, uh, right. and who knows, maybe tomorrow we'll, we'll hear more about the other conferences. It's, we're all living by the day at this point. Yes. Living by the hour, really. Right. Yes. Um, all right. And until next time, Go Hokies.